to How Do You Do the Podcast. I'm Samantha Vinicor-Meinrat. And I'm Yael Haroudi. We are so excited for another episode um, of our series focusing on anti-Semitism, its impact on Jewish life, and how each of us Jews. And we're really thrilled to have a guest here today, Rabbi Max Nissen. Um, Max and I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary together back in the day, and you have been posting really thoughtful um, commentary, especially on social media, that I've been following over the last few weeks. So I was like, we have to get him on and uh, get some insights. So Max, welcome to How Do You Jew? Uh, we're going to ask you to introduce yourself and share your Jewish story, um, and also what led you on your path to the rabbinate in particular. Definitely. Well, so it's, uh, it's so great to be here um, and, uh, and to talk to you, Samantha and Yael. Um, and yeah, so, you know, like, like you said, I'm, uh, I'm Max Nissen. I'm a rabbi and, and a Jewish educator. And I'm, I'm involved in creating formal and experiential Jewish educational opportunities for kids and teens and families. Um, and in, in the work uh, that I do, um, I think that really animated by, by two, uh, two different goals. Um, one is helping people to engage with Jewish culture and tradition in a way that contributes to their human flourishing, uh, that helps people build meaning in their lives and uh, to be resilient and, and just happy, um, whole human beings. And the other goal that, that really animates the work that I do is acting as an intentional steward for our identity, our history, our culture, and, and spiritual tradition. You know, in terms of numbers, Jews are a tiny part of the human family. And like all small cultural groups and people, I, I think that our voice matters. So I'm, I'm really committed in the work that I do to both um, uplifting the families and the kids that I work with and also uplifting the place of, of our tradition and our people in the human conversation. In terms of my Jewish story and leading me to the rabbinate, I'll try not to not to be too wordy. Um, I would say that I grew up uh, like a lot of other Jews in the in the conservative movement. Uh, my family really cared about Jewish identity, and that was something that was communicated to us growing up. Uh, both of my parents and many family members were super active in synagogue life as synagogue presidents and Jewish educators and volunteers in various Jewish communal organizations. Even though at home, we definitely uh, picked and chose what we did. So we always had Shabbat dinner growing up, but we weren't traditionally observant uh, like a lot of or most Orthodox families um, are. You know, I would say that, you know, Judaism was also really baked into my, my family culture growing up. So regular Shabbat dinners at my grandparents, pilgrimages down to Florida for, uh, for Pesach, for Passover with my great grandparents on um, regular trips to Israel because most of, most of my father's uh, family uh, was in uh, Natseret um, and, uh, and Haifa, um, two cities in, uh, in the north of Israel. So, so all that was just you know, an organic part of, of me growing up in my family. You know, I think because of uh, because of my family story, I was also really cognizant from a really young age. I think 
that Judaism wasn't just something that happened in Hebrew school or in synagogue, but it was something that had to do with who I was in the world and that connected me to other people in the world. And a large part of that had to do not just with the messaging that was communicated to me as a child, but also just the family stories that were passed down to me. Uh, you know, for example, my my grandfather, um, his parents, my great grandparents, fled the Russian Empire um, to escape uh, conscriptions and other uh, anti-Jewish policies there, and ended up in northern China, where my grandfather grew up uh, first in Tianjin and then, um, actually first in Harbin and then in Tianjin. Um, and my grandfather grew up under Japanese occupation most of his uh, most of his life um, in in northern China. Um, and in 1949, he and his brother moved to Israel and then moved to the United States. So all of these stories were just part of uh, part of my family's identity, part of our our personal story, not just kind of the broader Jewish uh, Jewish story. You know, stories about migration and persecution and meaning and and finding uh, finding places to make to make home. That's amazing. It feels like such a embodiment of the wandering Jew situation um, <laughs> in terms of your family story. But I, w I was really drawn to what you said about Judaism not just being something that was done in Hebrew school or in certain environments, that it was something that infuses how you see and move through the world. And I, you know, as a Jewish educator and also for us on the podcast, I think that's really where we see this as being so important and critical to figure out, yes, Judaism is a religion and it's a robust and beautiful religion, but then how does it leave the uh, traditional like black and white spaces of this is a religious setting and inform the rest of what we're doing? Yeah, definitely. You know, and you know, I would, I would say, you know, the the way that I always like to uh, to articulate it, you know, for me at least, is that, that that the Jewish people are are a people with a culture, and part of part of our culture um, has to do with our spiritual tradition and our religion. Um, and and definitely thinking about you know going back to your, your comment about the wandering Jew, we, we actually used to call my grandfather the man without a country. He had this this insane accent because you know he grew up um, in China under Japanese occupation, so they were uh, they were mandated by law to learn Japanese in school, but the school was conducted in Yiddish. But at home they spoke. Yiddish, Russian, um, and a little bit of Hebrew, and the school was um, like a lot of the Jewish schools um, in China at the time. Um, also taught also taught Hebrew, and then obviously he grew up um, out in the streets in a Chinese speaking environment. So he grew up speaking all these languages, um, and if you didn't grow up with him, you could not understand what he said. So my grandfather was the wandering Jew. I love that. That's crazy. And I thought my grandpa had the worst accent. He was only from Germany. <laughs> I just think Noam has a terrible accent right now. Uh, my husband has a very thick Israeli accent, and especially he teaches fourth grade. And when I think about, like, especially when school was on Zoom and these fourth graders had to figure out his accent, I'm like, wow, we're really doing these kids, like, a public service if they want to go into foreign affairs or something, because... That is an undiscernible accent. Yeah, I feel like once you once you get once you get one accent down, you can understand everything. You're just so good. So you you had a leg up on all of that. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, has anti-Semitism factored into your Jewish journey in any way? Um, has the uptake in anti-Semitism um, impacted the Jewish choices that you make or how you do? 
Yeah, you know, I think there, there's kind of like two two threads to that that I that I'd love to pick apart. Um, I would say kind of most immediate, immediately, like kind of the way that anti-Semitism impacts the way that I go about my day-to-day life and 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 how I do, right? Um, I would say it's had a tremendous impact. I think that when when I was younger um, and I had experiences with anti-Semitism growing up, it never really deterred me. I was always someone who you know, blasted uh, Jewish and Israeli music really loud. And I wore a big Magen David. Um, and even though I wasn't religious, a lot of times I would still wear a, uh, wear a kippah, a, a, a yarmulke. And, and I think that as I've gotten older and as I've started a family, I, I've gotten more cautious. And I think especially over the last several years with, with the uptick in anti-Semitism and a lot of stories that I personally experienced in my own community, um, you know, I've definitely made the decision um, more often than more often than I would like to to take my kippa off when I'm out in public um, and to you know use less uh, less Hebrew and Yiddish laced English when I'm when I'm speaking with people on the phone in public and you know th- there's been times you know even in the past uh, you know the past you know a couple of years where. You know, I'll be walking down the street um, in in Philadelphia, and someone will follow me for a few blocks, yelling "Shalom" at one point, um, which is very specific. And I later figured out um, is actually um, making the rounds in white supremacist circles. But someone actually followed me at one point, asking if I wanted him to be my Shabbos boy for a few shekels and yelling stuff at me for a few blocks, and. You know that that that's definitely had an impact for how I present in public, and you know, on the one hand, I I, I thank God that I have the ability, if I feel like I need to, for my safety, to take off my take off my kippah um, and to change the language that I use, and and most people, you know, can't identify me for the most part as Jewish, um, even though some people have asked if I'm Jewish without wearing a kippah, but mm-hmm. um, normally normally it works, and. Um, and that's a privilege on the one hand to be able to do that. And at the other hand, you know, as I speak to other rabbis and colleagues and, and Jews that I work with and encounter, there's a common experience of that taking, I think, a real psychic toll. Um, it kind of takes something away from you every time you make that decision. Um, and it's a privilege and it also comes with a price. Yeah, no, I feel like that's so challenging to be in that position to exactly as you said, to have the privilege of being able to say I'm going to take off part of who I am if I need to or hide it, not to say that it ever fully just, goes away if you need to. Yeah. Um, I'm just still uh, processing what you said about someone coming and asking if they wanted if you wanted them to be their Shabbos goy because I realize this is not a like particularly nice thing to say. I'm so impressed with how much learning has to go on to like build a Jewish vernacular like that. I feel like, again, working in Jewish education, I will work with students who, despite having gone to a Jewish camp or gone through a B'nai Mitzvah process, feel like they don't have the language to engage in Jewish spaces, that they don't know the key words or the buzzwords. So I'm very deeply disturbed, but also like, wow, someone is really putting effort into this. I can relate a lot to um, everything you said. Um, I I was followed only one time in my life mm-hmm. in Australia, 
and because I was, I didn't notice, I, I answered the phone in Hebrew, and then I noticed if someone started following me. Wow. Luckily, found two policemen just I went, stood by them, and they just understood something was wrong, so they kind of walked me out of the train station. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the, the one time I actually felt someone following me, but I can definitely relate to hiding your Jewish identity, because Sam and I were just talking about this um, on our last episode, and I said that I took my necklace off because I don't know I'm, I don't I don't feel as safe as I would like to feel safe, and for her it actually created a different reaction where she put it on. I've been rocking it <laughs> for the last uh, month or so. You know, I used to wear one. Good for um, you. Especially, especially Max, as you were saying about like growing up in this very visibly Jewish way. I feel like I had a very similar conservative Jewish upbringing and was like a very specific form of cool that involved like I had a t-shirt that I'd gotten on a USY trip that said Sababa on it and felt the need to wear this to my public high school as though like that was a cool thing to do there's a lot of feelings there and I would have my Magain David and like all of my just paraphernalia like there was no mistaking what I had going on at that point and then I don't think it necessarily went away but like you said it became um i don't know if more cautious but more thoughtful um in the sense of whether it was traveling abroad and realizing okay you know i'm gonna take a certain patch like not the backpack with a certain patch on it uh just for the sake of mostly my grandmother who like thought i was crazy the entire time um and also feeling like my reaction was actually less towards anti-Semitism and more towards the Jewish community because I felt like working in so many Jewish communal spaces, it became that much more important to me to double down on, especially as a woman, I can dress however I want and be just as learned and authoritative and Jewish and I don't have to look a certain way in order to be able to lead a room. So I feel like I took a lot of it off in that regard. Um, And then all of a sudden it became more important to me. I've been leading a series of interviews with um, Gen Zers, so high school and college students in particular, asking about how anti-Semitism has factored into the ways that they present Jewishly and has also um, factored into their feelings of what it means to be um, safe in Jewish spaces. And it's just been so interesting. It came out originally because I had asked a question about Jewish safe spaces unrelated to anti-Semitism. And I thought that I was gonna be able to embark on a series of conversations about like, is my gender identity affirmed in the Jewish spaces I spend time in? And are my Israel feelings welcome around this table? And like my politics, how does all this factor in? And what I got were these really practical answers about what a safe space means Jewishly in terms of since the shooting at Congregation Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, my synagogue now has an armed security guard, so I feel safe. Or the day school in my community got a government grant for um, bulletproof windows, so I feel less safe because I know we have to have that, but more safe because we do. And I'm sitting here like, I wanted to have these meta conversations about your feelings, but obviously there's been, especially coming of age during a time of mass shootings for a lot of these, kids and um, you know young adults a shift in what it means to claim safety in certain spaces kind of sad definitely you know and I sorry 
saying? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. You know, I I think that speaks to something else that, that a lot of people don't uh, don't realize about you know the the price, both both metaphorical, but also the the literal price that Jewish communities and synagogues and institutions actually pay because of the reality that we're living with, you know, not speaking about security um, arrangements in any particular institution, because that would be unsafe. But looking back to, you know, the past few synagogues and organizations that I've either worked for or worked with, you know, I would say that paying for armed security um, is is actually a norm. Um, and it's something that I noticed, and I, ne- I never even thought of any, I never even thought of it. Until I was having a conversation with uh, with a friend of mine who's a Christian clergy person, and for some reason I can't remember why the armed guards that are outside all of or almost all of the events in multiple synagogues that I've that I've worked for um, that came up in conversation, and my Christian colleague was totally flabbergasted. Um, he he, it was so out of the norm for him. He never would have thought about it, and. And this is something that you know Jewish Jewish institutions are either you know applying for for grants for and and raising dues for and you know making cuts in other places in order to be able to um, and being able to to fund and you know it it, it 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 carries both kind of a an emotional toll knowing that things have gotten to the point where we need an armed guard outside um, and then obviously also a literal. Uh, a, a literal financial toll um, and an opportunity cost on not being able to do as much of the kind of programming and outreach that we that we want to be able to spend money and time on. Yeah, no, I, I recently taught, you know, especially because of COVID, um, so much has had to be outside. So I taught like a four hour workshop on leadership for teens, like in a park. Um, because that was where we could sit socially distanced and we're all very sick of Zoom. I think I can speak for every single person I've ever met um, in saying that. And the synagogue that I was you know, doing this for, I didn't even realize that this was gonna be a thing. They paid a security guard to come sit with me at the park for four hours and there was nobody there. I mean, thank goodness in this particular moment, this was before the month of May, but there was no threat assessment whatsoever. It was literally just like in suburban Ohio, sitting in a park. Um, We had the best time. And I remember looking at this security guard and thinking to myself, like, does he think that, what what are his thoughts about this? Um, Obviously, you know, he took amazing care of us. He's a wonderful human being. Um, It's, you know, it's a job. I mean, like all positive things, but I was like, wow, you know, you're literally sitting here watching me do trust falls with kids as a security measure, but there are parents who would say no had that not been a thing. Um, so just the, the care that has to go in um, every level to what it means to ensure communal safety, and I think we're only going to see it going up. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, and, and what I would add is, right, right, I, I think that the 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 omnipresence of, of security guards and other security measures that, that we've been talking about, right? It it reinforces the the experience of of Jewish community members of being in fear. Um, and and I think for people who lack to go back to the other thread in the question that you asked me a few minutes ago, um for people who lack, I think, a strong Jewish identity or strong Jewish experiences in other areas, 
that sense of fear, unfortunately, can become a constitutive part of their Jewish identity. You know, the uh, the uh, Pew study, um, the, the new Pew study re- recently came out um, studying, uh, based on survey research, uh, Jewish Americans. And a very large uh, portion of Jewish Americans are concerned about anti-Semitism, have either personally experienced or witnessed anti-Semitism, and experience anti-Semitism as having gotten worse over the past five to ten years. And, um, and I don't think this is a mistake, right? The, 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 the data doesn't, doesn't show direct, uh, direct causation, so I want to be careful about how I'm saying this. But, but, but I don't think it's, it's totally unrelated that so many Jews also say that remembering the Holocaust is a core component of their Jewish identity, um, which, which I think is, is really sad, right? I think that remembering the Holocaust is so important, and I think that being safe and understanding the very real threat of anti-Semitism in America today is very important, but I don't want that to be people's core Jewish identity or even part of their core Jewish identity. I think the Pew, so the Pew study, we talked about this last week, particularly that stat that you just mentioned about remembering the Holocaust and how that was like the number one way that people related to their Judaism more than Israel, more than food, more than, you know, ritual or like the religion part. It was remembering the Holocaust. And I think I said these exact words last week. Obviously, I am not not in favor of remembering the Holocaust. I hope we could have that as a disclaimer, like that's a good thing. But I've been talking to a lot of colleagues over the last few weeks since it came out to say, what does that say about how we're educating? Does it mean we're educating for a victimhood identity that if we spend so much time on the Holocaust and that's so critical, is it that we're victims? Or I'm seeing, again, so many, especially younger Jews who are taking the Holocaust as a catalyst towards allyship, that instead of saying, oh my gosh, everyone's against us, let me look internally, to say, we know what it is to be the victims, but we're not anymore, and how do we translate um, that collective memory or shared identity forming experience into allyship? Um, And part of the dichotomy or dilemma that I've seen, again, especially with young people, because that's the the purview that I spend my time in, um, has been almost a question of how does my allyship work in this particular moment of anti-Semitism? Because last summer when we saw the murder of George Floyd and particularly the um, outcry for the Black Lives Matter movement, when I spoke to Jewish teens about anti-Semitism, what I heard was essentially, this isn't our moment. Like, yes, someone drew a swastika on my locker, but another community has it so much worse. Like, this isn't our time. And we got into these conversations about what is comparative suffering and oppression Olympics. And like, there are so many layers. And now in the month of May, we saw almost a complete shift for many, not for everyone, to say, I've been an ally. I've been standing up for all of these different causes. And then when it's our community's moment, where were the voices for me? So I don't know if there's anything you want to speak to in that regard. (laughs) Yeah, you know, definitely. You know, I I think that, you know, part of part of the discourse over the past few years has has been about when do we when do we center our voices? versus centering the voices of others. And, and I think it's, it's an important question, but I think that often we don't interrogate it 
as closely as we should. I think that the, the voices that we center um, are always and, and need to be context specific, right? So, so in a conversation specifically about um, you know racial discrimination in America, racial justice, Black Lives Matter, I think that the the voices of, of BIPOC people, right, um, need to be centered, um, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But but I think that when we're having conversations about anti-Semitism here in America or globally, we can't let people gaslight us. And I think that we have to sometimes be frank that that's sometimes what happens. Sometimes people, either intentionally or not, are gaslighting Jews and never wanting to have the anti-Semitism conversation, right? Never allowing us to center our voices in our own stories. Um, and never confronting the problem of anti-Semitism. Um, and I've seen countless examples of this just even over the past week. Um, you know, school districts that release statements against hate over the past week, obviously in response to the spike in anti-Semitism, that don't mention the word Jew or anti-Semitism one time. Um, this happened um, in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, just, uh, just this past week. I happen to know that example because I used to live and work in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, universities here in the Philadelphia area that have been nowhere to be seen releasing any kind of statements about anti-Semitism or the anxiety of their Jewish students or the Jewish community in general. Rutgers University just recently released appalling. a statement. I just have to interrupt. That was so bad. I, I actually didn't. Sorry, um, I have to interrupt just to say Rutgers offended me. Like, wait, I didn't hear. <laughs> sorry, Max, go on. Sorry, I interrupted. No, it was no. It's okay. It, it it was awful. So Rutgers University released a statement uh, explicitly condemning anti-Semitism and standing with their Jewish students in the Jewish community against anti-Semitism. Um, and then there was um, some pushback against uh, the Rutgers University Students for Justice in Palestine chapter, which I have no idea what their relationship is to the national organization. I don't know who they speak for, um, but, but they're the people that pushed back against the Rutgers University statement. And following that pushback, the chancellor at Rutgers University issued an apology for her condemnation of anti-Semitism and then issued another very watered down um, statement. So Rutgers issued a statement of anti-Semitism and then apologized for, issue, for issuing a statement condemning anti-Semitism. So they got a pushback because of Palestinians? Yeah, that the students But this has just... nothing to do between Israelis and Palestinians. This is Jews, Jews. And okay, so that should be a, a pushback from all Muslims around the world. Like this is... So the it's way that the it, no, it's not. But the way that it manifested was this Students for Justice in Palestine chapter basically said by like unilaterally condemning anti-Semitism without talking about what's happening to this the has nothing to do with it. It's anti-Semitism. It's been going on way before Israel was Israel. Yeah. No. I, oh my God. No disagreement. But when when I saw that in particular. Max, I can just say, I think I reread it no fewer than six times because I'm like, I must be missing something. Like, I just, I had to give the benefit of the doubt, which apparently was not deserved because I was like, obviously I can't read. It cannot possibly be that you apologize for your statement on anti-Semitism, which, because the day before when I'd even read the statement on anti-Semitism, 
people were complaining about that, saying it wasn't strong enough. So I thought that this was still the Jewish community saying, oh, they didn't condemn it enough. And I said, it was a fine statement. You know, I'm like not a linguist, but like it was cool. And then I realized what was happening. I and get over I think it. I was talking to myself. I don't even think anyone was around me, but I was analyzing this out loud by myself, which is why I have a podcast because I tend to just speak out loud even if no one's listening. It really bothers me that people put Israel and, and Judaism, anti-Semitism in the same spot. It's, it's not the same. It's two, it's two different things. Yes, Israel is a Jewish state by definition, but there are Jews all around the world. But I and anti-Semitism exists. Right, but I think that's where it comes up when people ask, like, why would you say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism? Aren't they separate? I feel like these are the examples for us to point to where a statement about anti-Semitism is essentially retracted because of an anti-Zionist stance. Um, and, and so there, there's this confluence of them. Um, but Max, going back to what you were saying earlier, I hope I hope this isn't unfathomably awkward, but I'm gonna quote you to you. Um, <laughs> because at the beginning uh -oh. of um, our intro, I had said, you know, I mean, you and I, we've, you know, we've known each other, but we hadn't exactly kept in touch, but I was really enjoying um, in the face of so much negativity on social media. I don't know that I've agreed with everything you said, but everything that you posted, I was like, that's thoughtful, um, which is, I think, the best compliment I can give at this point in terms of anyone's social media presence of like, that was thoughtful. So this is um, something that you posted. <laughs> well, oh, sorry, hello. Okay. Jews don't fit into the interpretive boxes that you use to understand the world or yourselves, but instead of admitting the limitations of your boxes, rather than reconstructing your boxes to accommodate for a broader understanding of other people and history, you just ignore us or you continue to try to shove us uncomfortably into those boxes you've already built, um, but which were not designed for us, and it's a problem. And that for me, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about allyship and also in light of this conversation about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism felt so deeply relevant because, you know, I say this about work, 99% of what I do is not what was listed on my job description, it's the and other category. The majority of things that I think about when I think about Judaism are not things that fit into any box of anyone else. And if people can't figure out how to understand that, that we are the and other, how can we relate in a healthy and productive way? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so I, I guess just building on that, you know, I would, I would say a couple of things. Um, yeah, I do. I, I I do feel a little awkward just to name it responding to myself, but that's <laughs> that's totally okay. Um, that's what we're here for. You know, we embrace awkward situations and create them. <laughs> I I love it. A, a little bit of awkward tension is always a good thing. Um, a lot of Jews, most of us are a little bit awkward, so it's totally cool. Um, you know, I I think that this does kind of the, the way that you framed it is exactly right right this fits into right this this idea of interpretive boxes that I was talking about right it fits into the confusion around understanding what anti-semitism is the confusion around understanding you know un, understanding both the differences between anti-semitism and anti-zionism but also where they overlap um and and it also just contributes so much to the misunderstanding of of Jews in general and who we are, 
um, which which feeds into both. So, you know, one of the ways that I would say people fundamentally misunderstand Jews, and this includes a lot of Jews also, is that we we understand Jews as a religious group much in the same way that we understand Christians or Muslims as a religious group. And I use those two examples because those are two of the world's largest religions and, and the religions that, that most of your listeners are probably most familiar with or at least somewhat familiar with. And, and the mistake, right, I think is really highlighted by a very old and not very funny Jewish joke. What do you call a Jew who doesn't believe in God? A Jew. A Jew. <laughs> right? And, and we all know plenty of Jews who, who don't believe in God or who don't believe in a personal God or don't really care one way or the other about God. Right? And the reason that there are still Jews and have always been Jews is because Judaism is a peoplehood, it's an ethnicity, it's a culture, it's been described in all these different ways. And as part of our people's culture, we have a religion, we have a spiritual tradition, right, which is part of our cultural heritage, just like almost all people um, around the world who have their own culture and identity have some spiritual tradition or, or what we today would call a religion that's part of their identity, right? So Jews are a people with a culture and Judaism, our religion, is part of, is part of our culture. Uh, but Jews are not a religion. Jews are a people. Jews are an ethnicity. And when it comes to boxes, all the boxes that we use to understand Jews and to talk about Jews, faith, community, religion, um, and, and add whichever others you want to add, um, are all fundamentally view Jews through the eyes of others and not through the eyes of our own historical experience or our own tradition. Um, so, so that's kind of what I meant thinking about the, those interpretive boxes. And this actually feeds directly into you know, where anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism do overlap, right? So often you hear people say, you know, why do, um, why does a religion need a country, right? Meaning Israel. Or, you know, why do we take Jews, um, you know, quote unquote, claims to Israel seriously, but all just based on the Bible. And people don't understand that, that Jews actually um, are a people and our connection to the to the land is spiritual, is historical, um, it's, it's based in history and archaeology and um, an unbroken chain of Jewish memory and lived practice and tradition. And it actually has nothing to do with the Bible as a proof, right? The Bible um, as a cultural document of Jews frames our connection to the land of Israel in a in a religious light because that's its job as a spiritual document, right? As the spiritual part of our culture, um, but but our but our identity to the land of Israel isn't isn't based on or justified by the Bible or any of the rest. And where this feeds into anti-Zionism and its overlap with anti-Semitism is that you know people will will often will often say or imply that there's a problem with Jews having a relationship or a connection to Israel. Um, and I think it's 100% correct that Jews as Jews 
are not responsible for and have no inherent connection to, by way of their identity, the Israeli government or any Israeli government party or any Israeli policies, right? But as Jews, our identity is fundamentally bound up with the geographic region of the land of Israel, Palestine, where the state of Israel now sits. Um, And our identity is inextricably linked to a long tradition which manifests in myriad ways throughout our culture yeah. uh, that revolve around our connection to that land and returning to that land. So so it's not true that Jews are responsible for or representatives of or connected to the Israeli government or any Israeli government policy, but it is true that the land of Israel is a core component of Jewish identity, um, at least traditionally speaking. That doesn't mean that every individual Jew feels that as a part of their individual constituent identity. And demanding that Jews disassociate from Israel, meaning the land of Israel, the people of Israel, right? Not necessarily the government of Israel, but demanding that Jews disassociate from from Israel in that broader sense um, is actually a demand that Jews erase and disassociate from a core component of themselves and their identity. And that I think is fundamentally anti-Semitic. Wow. I would agree. I think you, you, yeah, you worded it. I mean, yeah. We're I would agree. Articulate. Um, worded it is like the key word. I, I apologize for being so wordy. It was perfect. I feel like that's the occupational hazard of inviting rabbis on our podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it was perfect. You put it in, in the perfect, you just explained it in the, per, in the most perfect way. Because when I try to explain to people, yes, I'm Israeli. I was born and raised in Israel. But I have also a connection to Israel, not just because I'm Jewish. I mean, yes, because I'm Jewish, but it's a connection to the land. And not in particular to the to the government. It's there's a difference. So I, I really love the way the way you put that um, into words that I couldn't. It's amazing. Um, we're also seeing that anti-Semitism manifests in a variety of ways right now. Um, is there a form that is particularly concerning to you, or one that you're watching most closely? So I'll probably answer this in a way that maybe you don't want me to answer this. Um, There's because, no such way. Because I'm not gonna give a straight answer. Um, okay. You know, I, I think that, you know, starting with, starting with the frustration to kind of flip the question a little bit, mm-hmm. I'm, and Anir, if you, if you have Jewish listeners and non-Jewish listeners, whoever your listeners are, um, I really need people to hear this. I have so much frustration when I um, have liberal and progressive friends that point out anti-Semitism on the right, but either can't see it or never point it out in their own circles or on the left. And I have so much frustration with friends who are conservatives or on the right who are always pointing out anti-Semitism in liberal and progressive spaces and either can't see it or refuse to call it out on the right. Um, and and the, other, the other caveat that I'll say is I'm also so frustrated by the way in which people so often speak over Jews about this topic in ways that exacerbate the dynamic that I just described, you know, such that in mainstream media all the time, you'll see op-eds and people in newsrooms and with big microphones and podiums say things like, criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. 
Well, if you speak to rabbis and Jewish educators and a lot, most serious people in the Jewish community, almost none of us say that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. What you do sometimes see is politicians and activists in various places along the political spectrum who do weaponize anti-Semitism, but they're almost never speaking from mainstream Jewish organizations, and they're almost never Jewish communal leaders. It's almost always politicians on one side of the aisle or the other who do politicize anti-Semitism. But if you speak to Jews, uh, I'm not going to say no Jews do that. Um, most Jews and most Jewish organizations do not do that. Um, so, 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 so my first plea for people is just um, to drop that frame. Um, it's not, anti-Semitism is not a left-wing problem. It's not a right-wing problem. It's not a Democrat or Republican problem. It's a socio-cultural problem, which has literally been with us since pre-Roman Hellenistic times um, and has continued to evolve and morph um, based on the influences of various cultures and religious traditions um, through the centuries up until up until this day. So so that's the first thing. You know, that that being said, I think that anti-Semitism on the right and the left looks different. Anti-Semitism on the right concerns me a lot more in terms of my in terms of fear for my physical safety. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I think about God forbid um, a scenario of someone trying to, to physically harm people in my synagogue or or in other Jewish spaces, the person that I typically ima- that I typically imagine and picture, right, is someone from the far right. Yeah. Um, right. Someone like the t- terrible tragedy um, with the mosque shooting in New Zealand, or 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 the shooter from the Tree of Life synagogue. Um, and when I think about anti-Semitism from the left, even though there are actors who are physically threatening to Jews, that's not primarily where my fear is with anti-Semitism on the left. When it comes to anti-Semitism on the left, my fear is actually social ostracism and, and more institutional. I think because anti-Semitism on the left is often more subtle, it's almost, almost never explicitly violent, um, it's harder to point out and more people have blind spots for it. And it's much more acceptable and in polite company in my, in my experience. And therefore, I'm much more likely to be shunned from polite company or to be excluded from um, you know, the board on, on, on certain organizations. Or, or if I were a college student, I'm much more likely um, to face bizarre interrogations if I want to be appointed to a student government council post because I'm on Hillel, which almost every active Jewish student is. Um, and that's most likely to come from the left, right. uh, more so than from the right. Oh, yeah, no, there's there's so many different factors and so many different, um, like you said, you know, manifestations of where all of this is coming from. Um, but Max, I was really drawn to what you said about the one of the biggest problems then being the finger pointing, because I think we talked about this earlier as well, that if, if it remains so easy for me to say, oh, the other side needs to deal with their stuff, as long as I have something to scapegoat it with, I don't have to deal with what's happening in my own camp, my own house, you know, the places where I would feel 
comfortable and I think there's there's a lot of reckoning and soul searching to be done no on one wants, all sides. No one wants to look at themselves. No, and no one wants to, to admit that they're doing something wrong. Well, I don't do anything wrong. <laughs> um, I just want to know that for everybody involved. So we're, as we record, it's June 1st. Um, and the month of May, I, I think if someone had asked me, like, how do you Jew during the month of May, my entire response would be whiplash. Because as I was thinking back on what this month was, on May 1st, I posted on our podcast Instagram, it's American Jewish Heritage Month. And I thought we were going to be just like, yay, Jewing. And then we recorded our episode about Lagba Omer. And then we're hit where we had this lighthearted episode that aired and then a tragedy at um, Harmeron. And then we're like recovering from that. We're recording a lighthearted episode about Shavuot. And then we needed to put in a disclaimer. Oh my gosh, you know, war has broken out. Um, We know that we're still being lighthearted because we're still a week behind, but we want to be really responsive. Then this outbreak of anti-Semitism in the US and certain stats that just like hurt me to my core in a way that I haven't dealt with that over a one week period, over 17,000 people on Twitter tweeted something, some kind of iteration of um, Hitler was right. And I'm just like, what do we even do with this? And then in between all of that as Jewish communal professionals, the new Pew study came out and people wanted to have these like (laughs) intellectual conversations about what does this mean for our funding and our dollars going forward? And then by the time everyone kind of got their like acts together of like, okay, we can like figure out how to deal with all this. Thank goodness. I have no objections to this. There was a ceasefire in Israel. So um, like one event that I had where I was going to do like a conversation, a dialogue with teens and parents was canceled because the parent then said to me, oh, like there's a ceasefire. We don't have to worry about this anymore. And I'm sitting there just like, you're, you're, you're the problem. So knowing all of that happened within uh, one month and I'm still just like in a state of shock, but that's just me. Um, all these factors, they exist at once. We're holding multiple truths together um, in our a tenuous grasp right now. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing the Jewish people, the Jewish community right now? And what are your hopes for the Jewish people moving forward? I think a really big challenge is is reclaiming a sense of a holistic sense of our identity and who we are. I think a lot of Jews uh, don't don't realize. Right. Um, and don't have a sense of history in terms specifically of why our community today looks the way that it does and how much of that has to do with the the quid pro quo um, that animated the process of emancipation in Europe where, where you know from where most American Jews families to this day came from though, though not all and what that means is that so much of our identity has been mediated by by the twin pressures uh, to assimilate in order to prove that we deserve emancipation and equal rights and acceptance into society with um, 
within the context of anti-Semitism. Um, and, and because of that, that has a lot to do with, with why Jews today, um, and so many other people, you know, sometimes do see our identity as a religious identity, as a faith-based identity. Um, if, if anyone's looking for some really wonderful, um, and also serious reading on it, Leora Botnitsky wrote a wonderful book, um, uh, called what, how, how, sorry, how Judaism became a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she goes through and really describes the intellectual history, um, of Jewish intellectuals throughout the 19th century, feeling the pressure in a context of anti-Semitism with the opportunities to, to acculturate and, and, and move into, um, the majority social space, but also, um, under the threat of if you don't, then emancipation either won't be granted or won't um, or won't um, stay available to you. Um, Jewish intellectuals in that context felt a tremendous pressure to rebrand, right, to remarket and reframe Judaism as a religion because that's what was acceptable in a European 19th century frame, right? We're not scary, we're not foreigners, we're not um, a different ethnicity or culture, we're just like you, we're Germans, only we, we don't have Jesus and we celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday and not on Sunday. Um, now that's, that's a gross oversimplification um, of a lot of social processes and history and you know, I don't want anyone to think that's, that's the, total, the total story, but, but I really um, think that a main challenge that we face is how to reclaim our sense of identity in a holistic sense um, and to find joy in being a religion and a people and an ethnicity with a culture and not just a language, Hebrew, but, but Jewish languages, Hebrew and Ladino and Yiddish and reclaiming the fullness of, of who we are and where we come from. Um, so for me, that, that's a major challenge. You know, two other challenges, I think, is really standing up. Uh, I'm a rabbi. Ask me one question. I'm giving you three answers. Um, is, is, is reclaiming um, our connection to uh, to Israel again, not to the government, not to any particular, but in the faith climate when it comes to public discourse about Israel, um, reasserting our connection and maintaining our connection um, to the Jewish people um, and to the land of Israel, right, the place that our culture and identity and and people come from. Um, and and that's going to be an incredible challenge moving forward and teaching people and working with people to uh, to be able to with, with nuance and sensitivity um, and 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 grace walk the tightrope of agreeing or not agreeing with um, any Israeli policies or governments and at the same time not losing that sense of connection which um, for me, you know, and, and my sense of Jewish history and tradition um, is essential to our identity and who we are. Um, right? We're we're not just Christians without Jesus. We are we are a people, and we come from a place. Um, we are not we are not the wandering Jew, even though so many anti-Semitic tropes have depicted us that way, um, and that's how how sometimes we felt moving from place to place over the centuries. And I guess the last thing I would say in terms of challenges moving forward is. Our community faces a tremendous amount of, of Jewish illiteracy. Uh, I'm not 
the first person to say this. Some smarter uh, people have said this than me, but but the American Jewish community, through no fault of any individuals, this is not meant to shame anyone. And if you're listening, please, please don't feel any sense of shame. Um, this is this is a communal um, a communal problem that is is outside of mere personal responsibility and decisions. But the American Jewish community is arguably the most illiterate Jewish community in the history of Judaism and Jews in the diaspora in terms of our lack of ability to read and understand and or speak Hebrew or other Jewish languages, a lack of facility or understanding of Jewish history, religious texts and culture um, in terms of uh, just a total a total lack of of cultural life, um, right? When, when people think about cultural Jews, um, they think about Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld and Bagels, and I love all of those things. Um, as you should. <laughs> but as I should, right? As everyone should. I don't care if you're Mizrahi or Sfaradi or Ashkenazi, if you're American or otherwise, everyone should love Seinfeld. <laughs> but, um, right, but, but Seinfeld isn't Jewish culture. Um, and, and there's a main, there's a big problem if people think that Seinfeld is Jewish culture. And I think that as Jewish educators, we have a lot of work to do, um, listening to people, traveling with people and supporting people uh, in, in rebuilding a community that's literate, that can converse in our own cultural idioms, that has mastery over Jewish language. Because if, if we can't do that, um, then, you know, I'm not sure what the then is, but, but, but I'll leave it at, uh, I'll leave it, I'll leave it at this. It, it is so important that in order to understand ourselves, we have to be able to understand ourselves in our own terms, in our own language, in our own cultural idioms, and in the context of our own history and not through the eyes of others. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so um, Max, I want to thank you for joining us, um, and I would like to ask you if our listeners would like to find you or follow what you do, how can they do that, uh, follow your work or your interesting posts that Samantha finds? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not on Twitter or Instagram or any place like that, Good for but you. if you search me... <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you search me on Facebook, Max Nissen, N-I-S-S-E-N, uh, I believe you should be able to find me. Um, a lot of my posts are, are public. Not all of them are, but uh, but you should be able to find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation, and uh, we've so appreciated your insights. For all of our listeners, um, please don't forget, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can subscribe, like us, give us a five-star rating or review, send us your feedback. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at HowDoYouJewPod, email us at HowDoYouJewPod at gmail.com, or check out our website at HowDoYouJewPod.com. And until next time, happy Jewing!